Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. Whatever it is you want to know, whatever it is you want to do, I want to promote that to people. I'm uh, a little bit, are we on, by the way? Oh, we are. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and so we're grateful that you were able to come in and plug in with us today at Mecca and online. And so, dear friends, it's been a kind of a odd morning as we all woke up. And uh, Matt uh, texted me and said, I've been, I've been called in. He works for NDOT, you know. And he said, so I won't be able to do the coffee. So Chris is going to pinch hit for me. Would you make the coffee? Yes. He says, I've got to go out and make sure that the roads are passable. And Matt sees it as his sovereign duty to go out and do that so people can come to church on Sunday. And I, I'm grateful that we have people that do that. And I'm also grateful I'm not working there this year because I'd be out. <laughs> and uh, somebody else would be here. But um, I would rather be with you. And so, friends, um, I've struggled over the last several years with society. Because society has this idea in their heads that they know more than anybody. I think people do believe in a sovereign God. I think they do believe in a creator. But my goodness, don't they have a variety of opinions as to what he's really like? Do you agree? I think that some opinions of God might be correct, but I think a lot of them are false. Here's what I know. Before I met the Savior, I had a wrong view of God. Anybody? And so, dear friends... I've heard so many people tell me, maybe it's because they've struggled or maybe they've got inside their own minds or they've become a little educated or by experience they come to this conclusion. I'm not sure. Maybe they've heard someone else. I don't know. Whatever it is, people believe that, well, there really is no Holy Spirit or power that assists us on a daily basis. Or they believe that the end of life, when it comes, is it's just it. It's over. And wouldn't that be a sad thing? Either way, dear friends, what I have found is that my experience with God shows me otherwise. And I've had people sit in my office and other places and say, I want to believe. I'm trying to believe. I need a God moment. If God would just show me. How do you know that he's real? How do you, how do you know he's with you? How do you know he's speaking to you? How do you, how do you know those things? Because every time I think maybe God's speaking to me, I'm afraid it's my own conscience talking. And it could be. It also could be something else. It could be a variety of different things. And again, I've said over and again, I believe that people want to hear what they want to hear. Because they want to believe what they want to believe. And you know why. So they can do whatever they want. Do what they want to do. Yeah. And so uh, we're a people that desires that. And yet, friends, I begin to think about that. And I think, good night. If, if that's true, then we have no hope. If when death comes, it's over, there's no hope. If 
we're struggling and there's no one to help us but ourselves, uh, there's certainly no hope. If we have to rely on other people, you might find that they fail you often. There's no hope. If we don't have something to believe in, then we have no hope. And I'm stunned by the idea that so many people will say there just is no higher power, there's no God, there's no Christ, there's no Holy Spirit, there's none of those things. Come on, grow up, get in the game. It's just not true. Well, how do you know that? Because I'm a realist. I've watched it. I've seen life. Everybody struggles, and then they die. That's the way things are. So I thought that today maybe we might go in a different direction. Rather than just telling people that there's a God because we feel it and we know it, how about we get proof of it? Isn't that, how about that? And I thought to myself, listen, you're an educated guy. Why don't you go into your education and use it? Why don't you go into the historical things that we have that prove the existence of Christ in his life? How about that? Wouldn't that be something? Because there's an awful lot of it. There's more, way more evidence for his life than there is against it. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And scroll down, if you will, to uh, verse 8. And here, friends, there's a couple of things I want you to grasp. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and we're going to go through 17. Listen to what Peter says, finally, as he's concluding his letter. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Uh, that's a struggle right off the bat, isn't it? Okay, live in harmony with one another. Then he says, be sympathetic. Oh, that's another struggle, right? Because we're just sick to death of people, aren't we? Okay. Love as brothers. And some translations are probably adding sisters to that. Be compassionate and humble. Boy, he's, he's, he's given us a tall order all the way through this one verse, hasn't he? He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Oh my goodness, we're prone to that. But with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, <laughs> you heard he said, repay evil and insults with blessings. We're not built that way, friends. Unless the Spirit resides in you, now you are built that way. If you're not doing it, there's not a Spirit being enacted within your body, is it? So true, right? Look what he says. For whoever would love life and see good days and keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech, he must turn from evil and do good. We better start doing that. Amen? Amen. We must seek peace and pursue it. We ought to start doing that, shouldn't we, church? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. I'm scared when the Lord's eyes are not upon me. Are you? So I darn sure better be righteous. And his, eyes, or his ears are attentive to their prayer. I want the Lord to hear my prayers. Then I better be righteous. Amen? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Can Christians do evil? And the answer is yes. Maybe a better question is, how often? 
Are we doing it? Wow. But look at this. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Did you hear that? In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Why would he have to tell Christians that? Because we haven't done it. Not to the degree that God demands and expects. Amen? The more our hearts are set apart to Christ, the more like him we're going to be. And the more like him we're going to sound. And the more like him we're going to, to appear. And the more like him we're going to act. Would you agree? And when you do that, listen to this. Always... Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. You know what? I don't think we know enough about it to do it. Your feelings are not enough. You need to have not only heart knowledge, you have to have head knowledge. And you have to be able to tell people, well, you can believe whatever you want, but these documents... These historians, these things have told us that Jesus lived. So don't just go by people's feelings and opinions in the church. Go back to known historical documents and writers. Not just Christian ones, neither. And we can prove the existence of Jesus Christ. Man, that's huge, isn't it? He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Because we seldom get into an argument and respond with gentleness and respect. <laughs> have, have, have you noticed that? Huh? Okay. And we're to keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, not because of you, but because of him in you, you see. It is, he says, better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Yes, but I'm not sure we want to embrace it. And you know why? Because society has taught us that if we suffer for doing evil, uh, we sort of, believe that maybe we've deserved it but when you suffer for doing good that's not fair it's not right yeah tell that to Christ amen yeah right and what did he do embraced it why because he knew he had to not that he wanted to his desire was to save you to what's that rescue people that was his desire and so whatever he had to do to make that happen he did he didn't have this gruesome, weird desire for pain or hurt or struggle or ridicule, humiliation, let alone a beating and crucifixion. He didn't desire that stuff. But if it would rescue you and me, then he was in. And it's pretty hard 
to throw insults and ridicule at somebody after they've done that for no reason at all other than for someone else. And this is what Peter's trying to say. And it really sets in motion here the kind of person we ought to be as a Christian. Now, I, I have to tell you, friends, I believe this is an amazing passage in 1 Peter and one which we need to be reminded of more often, which is so because of Christ we are different. We need to be reminded of this because due to Christ we are to be different. And oftentimes we're, we're not different. And so that causes us to have to be reminded again, which is why Peter reiterates it. And if we're different because of Christ, shouldn't we act like it? Can I get a yes? <laughs> shouldn't we? But as powerful, I think, as this passage is, I want to focus on the latter part, particularly verse 15, where Peter is clear that we as Christians should always, notice he said always, be able to give others our reason for hope. And I wonder what answers I would get if we started over here with Pastor Chris or Jennifer and we went all, and we went all the way through this series of pews. We went, at Mecca, we start at the beginning or back or wherever. And... What reasons would you give for your hope in Christ? How about those of you at home and watching online? What, what would you say if someone asked you? You'd probably be like, ah. That doesn't sound too much like always prepared, does it? You see, it's not enough to know. You have to be willing to live it. Because if you're living it, then you'll be able to share it like that. Because you, because you can say, let me tell you something, this happened this week, or this happened this week, or this didn't happen, and without my hope in Christ, I would have been screwed. It's real simple. And so, let me tell you what my Lord did for me this week. Let me know how I know I have hope in Him. See, you, you have to go through these trials and things in order to invoke your hope in Him. That's how you can share it with people. But in order to do this, we have to be filled with head knowledge, heart knowledge, and more than that, practicing our faith, because that's what it is. If you're not practicing your faith, you won't know what to say when you're asked. You know the old adage, if you don't use your knowledge and experience, what will happen? You'll lose it. Yeah, you'll lose it. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, I've seen it happen over and over and over again. You know, I'm, I'm a certified General Motors mechanic, that Goodwin certified, that usually surprises people, but I don't use it very often. And you'll be surprised how often when I'm forced to work on a car or look at something, I've been thinking, huh, how does it work again? Right? You know, I've been working on computers a good chunk of my life. And let's face it, I, I don't think that computer builders today know what DOS is. Maybe they've heard of it. It's disk operating system. But that was before Windows came around. Some of us started out with Tandy 1000s <laughs> from Radio Shack. Huh? There, where's Windows? Well, it, it wasn't Windows. Okay? And so sometimes I have to do things on a computer even today that I haven't had to use a DOS command for years and years and years. You know, like, you know, this copy star dot star, you know, in the, in the command. 
And you're like, what? Yeah. Sometimes I'm thinking, how did I do that again? I'll, I'll go further than that. Bring me a, a machine that's got Windows 7 on. I'll be like, hmm, i got to think about that for a minute. <laughs> Bring me one with XP, and I'm like, oh, completely forgot how to do it because I'm all acclimated to 10. See, this is the way it goes. I've been a WordPerfect user most of my life, and Corel owns it. But I remember when Novell did. Remember Pastor Bob? Go back to a Novell version and see if you can use it. <laughs> wow. Because it's just, it, it's, see, if you don't use these things, you lose them. And it's clear that if you don't practice your faith, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose the experience of what God has done and what he, has, what he continues to do. So what reasons do you have for your hope in Christ? I mean, he's, he's asked, that's what Peter's saying. Do you know? You got to know. What is it? And I really believe that this is a fair question and that Peter is absolutely brilliant the way he puts it. Now, I know the Holy Spirit gave it to him, but he's brilliant in the manner and way that he put it. It's like you can't escape it. I can't, I don't know about you, but I can't hardly stand it when there's no escape for me. When I don't really want to believe something or invoke something or practice something that someone's telling me, but I look at it and there's just no way around it. It's bold-faced reason. Right there it is. How do you not accept it? Because if you take an absolute known truth and you completely disregard it and say it isn't true, that's, that, unfortunately, I have to tell you, is either an emotional or a mental disorder. It's fact. It'd be like, uh, you know, me going up to the bishop here and say, Bishop, man, that's a, that's a pretty purple shirt you're wearing today. And he said, that ain't purple. And everybody in here says, well, it is. Now, unless you're colorblind, it is. But what if that individual says, but you can think whatever you want, but I know what it is, and it ain't purple. We're going to say, well, everybody else thinks it is, so... Right? See, but we, we do that, though, as people. We refuse the truth when it's right in front of us sometimes. Especially when you find out that someone said something or done something to hurt you. you just, especially if they're a good friend, you don't, you don't want to believe it. Even though the evidence is right there, you don't want to believe it. But over time, you're going to have to believe it when more evidence comes out or they admit it. But that would be like when they admit to you that they've done it, you're like, nah, you didn't do that. I just said I did. You see, this is, this is where we get to this point at times. And unfortunately, that's exactly what society has done. They just cannot accept the fact that maybe there's a God. Maybe there was a person who came down as God in the form of a person and died for them in a manner that saved them so that they wouldn't have to go to the grave and stay there until judgment. And then find eternity in the lake of fire. I, I believe people just think that's just the way things are. And Jesus said, but that's not the way things ought to be. You hear me say that how many times now? And so this is where we are. And I began to think about that more and more and more. And I thought, you know, the Spirit knows that we claim to have faith and hope in Christ, but He also knows that we oftentimes doubt God's willingness and maybe even His ability to handle the things that we find important. We may not say it, but sometimes I think we sort of believe it. 
can think it. In this message, I sort of kind of want to share with you my reason for my hope. Because there are many reasons I could give for it. There are many reasons I could give for the evidences of my faith. Because there are many. But this is where I would begin if I were called upon to give my reason for my hope. In sharing with you a reason for my hope, perhaps I can strengthen and confirm the hope that you have. Who? My fellow Christians. And maybe together we can create faith and hope in the hearts of some who may not yet be Christians. Or for those who have sort of backslidden away from it and now doubt is consuming them. And so I will only begin today by suggesting some facts which no one can deny. Even if one is an atheist or an agnostic. You can't deny it. Let's talk about some facts that cannot be denied. Although I realize some people, like I said earlier, will deny facts as truth even if they are undeniable. It's that area of life that we call fantasy, <laughs> right? And some just can't get away from fantasy. They live life in fantasy all the time. But let's check out these facts. First of all, friends, write this down. Uh, you got, did, you got, did you have your outline, David? Did you get the outline? Well, uh, it's online, if you, right, Jonathan? We have it up. It, it, and, I, and I put more in this outline than almost any I do because there's some things you need to know. Number one, Jesus lived. It is undeniable. It is undeniable. No one denies it. And if you do, you're ignorant. Or you're uneducated. Or you simply just don't want to believe it. But we have evidence that Jesus lived. Only the most ignorant or prejudiced skeptic would ever question the history of Jesus. Why? Because the evidence from unbiased sources is undeniable. Roman historians even attest to this fact. They've proven it over and again. Tacitus or sometimes called Gaius, a world-renowned human uh, Roman historian in 112 A.D., wrote in his annals about Jesus. Pliny the Younger, another Roman historian and magistrate, also sometimes called Gaius. In his letter to the Emperor Trajan, Suetonius, a court official under em Emperor Hadrian. All of these Roman historians were not Christians, but they speak of the man Jesus, who was called the Christ. He lived. It is undeniable. Jewish sources, and while sometimes they also uh, denied his deity, and you know they, some of them still do, they still attest to his history. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish general and historian, makes several references to Jesus. The Talmud which includes books of the Jewish law. They speak frequently of Jesus. They don't deny that Jesus lived, only that he was not what others or he claimed to be. Thallus, and this is 50 years after Jesus died, a Samaritan historian who tried to explain away the darkness at the crucifixion. He didn't do a very good job of it, but he talks about Jesus being there. <laughs> I mean, he, he was an eyewitness. He saw it, you see. He was there. In fact, so overwhelming is the evidence that even atheistic historians admit that Jesus lived. For instance, H.G. Wells, some of you more modern author, you may know who that is. H.G. Wells, in his book, 
in the outline of history said, one is obliged to say, here was a man. <laughs> this part of the tale could not even have been invented. That's what H.G. Wells says. You couldn't have invented it if you wanted to. Too many people were eyewitnesses to the fact. You can't, one person couldn't make it up. You couldn't convince the whole darn world to believe in something if it wasn't true. Right? Even Will Durant spent two chapters on Jesus in his book, The Story of Our Civilization. In fact, some of you may know who that is because a number of years ago they put out The Story of Us. It's loosely patterned on that book. Have you guys seen that, The Story of Us? Okay. That's what the, it was, The Story of Our Civilization. He spent two complete chapters on Jesus alone in that book. Strangely, The Story of Us doesn't mention Jesus. Why is that? And then we look at the Old Testament, the, or the New Testament. The evidence in the New Testament as a historical document is absolutely astronomical. Go with me here for a little bit. The authors claim to write as historians and even eyewitnesses to real events. So look at all the writers of the New Testament. Did they claim to be historians or at least eyewitnesses? Yes, they did. In fact, they say so. Luke, the physician, his gospel in history of the early church, of Luke and Acts, composed over a third of the New Testament. You could even say he helped Paul write uh, the Hebrews. Uh, some would say that's not true, because we, or we just don't know. Yeah, but there's a good evidence for it, okay? He wrote as this amazing historian and described historical events, not only from what the disciples told him when he wasn't around, but the things he saw when he was around. John, the beloved disciple, in his gospel, wrote as an eyewitness account. And in his first epistle, in 1 John, he claims to be an eyewitness. Paul, the Jewish rabbi, the Pharisee, and the member of the Sanhedrin, half of the books of the New Testament are his personal letters. I spent a, a pretty good amount of time there. And he has proved to be an eyewitness along with others. People say, well, Paul wasn't an eyewitness. Sure was. Who do you think met him on the road to Damascus? Well, Jesus was already ascended. Yeah, but he met him. I mean... What could God not do? I mean, if he could be on earth before his birth, he could certainly be on earth after his death in some manner. Now, his body didn't come to earth, but his spirit did. And aren't you grateful that his spirit is on earth now? The day's going to come when it's not, you know. But it is, praise God. So he was here. In fact, as a historical document, the evidence is absolutely remarkable. <laughs> And I'll tell you why. Because the New Testament was written very soon after the events it records. Very soon thereafter. It was, it was recorded and compiled. Nelson Glick, who was the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And incidentally, that's where Dr. Coker got his doctoral degree at Hebrew Union. He was a renowned Jewish archaeologist, and he states this. Every book of the New Testament was written between the 40s and the 80s of the first century A.D. That's pretty soon afterwards. W.F. Albright, another biblical archaeologist, said, We can emphatically say that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament past 80 A.D. That means within 80 years of Jesus ascending to heaven. Every single book of the New Testament was compiled and ready to be read within 80 years. You say, well, that's a long time. <laughs> Not in comparison to all other historical documents that we use in school. And let me show you that. 
It is noted for its historical accuracy in areas that can be tested. Nelson Glick later said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological uh, discovery has ever controverted biblical reference. Anything that they've ever found archaeologically has never been or shown the Bible to be wrong. In fact, it's done nothing but prove its correctness. <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, the problem is they don't want to do anything with it, you see. Just, it's, just, it's, it's a done deal. Sir William Ramsey, 18th century historian, said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed among the greatest of historians in the world. But, of course, are we going to do that? No. In fact, if you really want to get technical, the manuscript att attestation is for the New Testament and it's unsurpassed. As, in other words, what I mean by that, as a historical document, the New Testament is unsurpassed by any other document on the face of the planet. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Check it out. In the number of copies for the purpose of comparison, listen to this. You've got to open your brains here and you've got to hear this. Okay? There are over 4,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. There are 13,000 copies of portions of the New Testament in historical libraries around the world. Now, why are they there? Because they are historical documents. That's why. Now, contrast that with other historical documents, such as Caesar's Gallic Wars, which almost everybody in here, if you went to college, had to read, by the way. There are only 10 Greek manuscripts remaining, contrasted to 4,000 of the New Testament, or others, such as the Annals of Tacitus, where only two remain, or Plato, where seven remain. And everybody had to read Plato in some manner if you went to college. Okay? Only seven manuscripts remain against 4,000, or 13,000 of portions of it. And, of course, the famous Sophocles. <laughs> if you took any advanced philosophy courses, Pastor Bob, you know who Sophocles is. Only 100 documents and fragments of his writings ever remain. And yet, it is one of the most read and most sought after and most taught historical documents in college in the world. <laughs> and the New Testament has literally 15 times as many, and we don't touch it in college. Even for historical acumen. You understand? Even for historical acumen. In the time between the originals and the earliest copies, fragments exist that are within 50 to 100 years of their writing, and complete copies are within three to 400 years after the originals were written, which means that every version of Scripture that we have whether it was from Alexandrian or whether it's from Byzantine, depending on where in the world you were at that time, they're highly accurate. And every version of Scripture today being done by scholars goes back to those manuscripts, and they are highly accurate. Even the paraphrased versions are highly accurate. You understand? We, we, we have to get this, friends. You have, you have to understand this. 
The fact is, chances of corruption or unwanted changes within them is incredibly unlikely. Incredibly unlikely. By contrast, though, compare this with manuscripts of other classical histories and the years between the original writing and any copies. This is huge. Where there could have been much changed, much corrupted, much lost before it was actually put together. The histories of Thucydides. Now, a lot of you don't know who that is, but anybody who's been to theological school knows who that is. Uh, I don't know that we're, unless you're in advanced degree, we're probably not teaching that. But the earliest copy is 1,300 years removed from the original. <laughs> I think a lot can happen in 1,300 years. Okay? The histories of Herodotus, earliest copy, 1,350 years uh, removed. Uh, Caesar's Gallic War, I mentioned that earlier, 950 years. The Roman history of Livy, 350 years. And the earliest copy is only a fragment, by the way. And yet, we teach that in just about every college in uh, the United States and in the uh, United Kingdom. <laughs> you understand? In the history of the world, it's taught. If you take a world history course, you're going to talk about the Roman history of Livy. And again, it's only a fragment. And it was 950 years. Okay, histories of, of Tacitus, 750 years, the annals of Tacitus, 950 years, and remember, there's only two manuscripts. You see, friends, here's the deal. As, as a society, this is what we're doing. The greatest historical document known to mankind and the most accurate we can prove is right here. It's this manuscript right here. I'll, 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 do, I'll, I'll do this for you. Take the, old, take the Old Testament out. That's fine. Go to the New Testament. It is the most accurate, most soon put together manuscript after a history has taken place in any manuscript in the history of the world, in the history of mankind. And it's not one that's used at all in any secular college in the world. But these others are used constantly. Constantly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. You see, any variances that exist between ancient copies of the Scripture are minuscule. There are a few. I've told you what they are. I've, ta I've taught it numerous times. Again, between Byzantine and Alexandrian. There are some differences because in the Alexandrian Scriptures, you know, some of uh, the writers or the, the scribes that put things on paper, the translators, they would put notations trying to explain what they think the writer was trying to say, and that's somehow gotten into the, some of the Bible a little bit. That happens a little bit. But yet, between Byzantine and Alexandrian, the differences are so minor that nobody cares about them. Not even those who are emphatic about it. Now, scholars will typically desire one over the other. That's okay. But they don't dismiss the other one. That's how close they are. In fact, only one half of 1%, one half of 1%, you understand that small number? Is in question in the scripture compared to nearly 35% of Homer's Iliad, okay? Which has been completely accepted as true by colleges and universities for decades. That's another manuscript that pretty much anybody that takes a world history course or a philosophy course is going to have to read. It's a poem. You understand what I'm saying? 35% is called into question as to its authenticity, and it's used in every college and university in the world. And only one half of a percent 
is in question in the New Testament, and it's not used anywhere, unless it's in a Christian theological seminary or college. <laughs> you, see, you see the difference here? It makes no sense, but we're doing it. It's no wonder we're teaching society what we're teaching them. Now, that's a huge testament to the authenticity and accuracy of the ancient copies of the Scripture, I think. Even that, there's more to it. It can also be stated that no fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith rests on a disputed reading. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in any substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially in this case with the New Testament. And that's what Sir Frederick Kenyon, an authority on the, in the field of New Testament textual criticism, said. He said, you, 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 you cannot, even whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe it or you don't, you cannot deny the authenticity of the history of it. You just can't. Nobody with a brain can do it, is what he's saying. Further, the accuracy and evidence of the New Testament is stated by renowned biblical scholar, theologian, and writer F.F. F. Bruce. Now, he's died now a few years ago, but if you have uh, a commentary or you have, like, walked through the Bible, if you've done anything with that and for the adults, he, he wrote a chunk of that. Okay? And F.F. F. Bruce said, The evidence of our New Testament is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be as beyond all doubt. The fact is, the New Testament is true, it is real, and it is accurate. But we don't talk about that. We don't teach that. We don't preach that. We don't go out there and demand that people accept that. But the other side will demand we accept the Iliad which is not incredibly accurate. Do you understand the contrast here? It's an oxymoron of the greatest degree. The other side does not want to hear it. They refuse it. Remember what I said about people that it's purple? No, it's not. Well, you can think and believe whatever you want, but the evidence is right there. If you really wanted the truth, if you really wanted to be accurate in your history, then you would have to look at this. You really would. <laughs> why won't you? Because the enemy doesn't want you to, that's why. And it's easier to use other things because we're a people that wants to hear what we want to hear so we can believe what we want to believe to do what we want to do. It, go, it, it, it comes full circle. It works in this little nutshell, you see. So these are the facts. They're in dispute. You can't, you can't get away from them. You really can't. My wife told me I need to stop telling people bring a sack lunch. Well, in this case, I think I could use it because I have absolute, utter proof. And I'll have the only one. It, it, it's there. It's right there. You can't deny. The physical proof is in front of you. Color it any way you want, but that's the color it is. Amen? So what are the implications of these facts? What are the implications of these facts? First of all, we are absolutely forced to make a decision. We don't want to do that sometimes, but we have to. You got to make a decision. Sometimes I hate making decisions, especially if it's a decision I know is going to upset the apple cart and hurt somebody's feelings, or it's going to, you know, cause one person to feel excited, another person to feel not so much. I don't like I don't like making those decisions, but as pastor, I have no choice. But this is a greater magnitude. This is accepting the truth of the New Testament and the basis for the the life of Christ, or not. You're forced to make, and you know what? At the end of time, 
everybody going to be forced into a decision. <laughs> You're going to make it. You're going to accept Christ or you won't. And there will be consequences on both sides. Amen? We absolutely are forced to make a decision. What decision? The one concerning Christ. You can't deny that he lived. Therefore, we have to decide who he is. Right? I mean, you, you, no one can deny that he lived. It's not possible. Now, you can say he wasn't the Christ. You can say he wasn't the son of God. And many still do. But he did live. That I can prove. I mean, who is he? Is he what his followers claimed him to be? Is he the son of God? I believe so. Or is the New Testament's representation of him completely false? Well, that's a fair question. Okay? So what other decision do we have to make, my friends? Are there other decisions to be made? You bet there are. First of all, the evidence of the New Testament as a historical document. Either you're going to believe it's historically true or you won't. I've made my decision. Have you? I know what it is. I can prove it against all doubt that it is more accurate as a historical document alone than almost any other document on the face of the planet. I mean, we can't deny the overwhelming evidence for it. Therefore, we have to decide concerning its historical reliability. I mean, did those things that are listed here, did they really actually happen? Well, interestingly, what's listed here is not the only place that it's listed. <laughs> okay? Some of those Roman historians I told you about, they write identically to some of the facts and things that happen just as the New Testament does. So, who's lying? Well, those who refuse it, deny it. Has to be. Okay? Therefore, are we going to accept it on the same basis we accept other historical documents? Clearly we won't. Clearly we're not. Why not? That's my question. Why aren't we? If there's more evidence and proof for it, why aren't we accepting it? Now, if we will, then we either accept it at face value or we reject it, and along with all the other historical documents, whose evidence is much less. I mean, if you're not going to accept this one, then you can't accept the rest of them. <gasps> what? We can't accept Sophocles and the Iliad? Not if you're going to accept, if you won't take this, then you can't. You can't do it. What? You heard me. You can't. There's more evidence for this one than there is for those. Flavius Josephus, same thing. Tertullian. I didn't mention him, but he, that's another one. My goodness, do you know how much historical content is written about the old Greek and Roman worlds by Tertullian? It's unbelievable, probably more than anybody. And he mentions some of the very same things in his history that are right here. But they cut that part out and don't look at it. Why not? He wrote it. I have to tell you, friends, <laughs> it, 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 it stuns me in the manner and way that we operate in the decisions we make based on what we want to believe and what we don't. Thirdly, we have to make a decision concerning whether the New Testament is actually true or not. We can't say that it was simply a sincere but mistaken effort to explain who Jesus was. We just can't do it. Therefore, we have to decide whether it's true or a carefully contrived lie. That's what we have to do. Either it's, it's completely true or it's, carefully it's a carefully contrived lie and a whole bunch of people were involved in it over time <laughs> and maintained it, by the way, even after they were dead. 
Now, that's kind of far-fetched, don't you think? And it, it is upon this last decision to me that all else truly depends. So let me tell you what it is. There are not only implications of the facts, there's implications of our decisions. In other words, there are consequences. There are implications of things. Every decision you make has some sort of an implication or, or, or a consequence. Would you agree? It's a fact. On the one hand, if we decide that the New Testament is a carefully contrived lie, then we have to concede that a book with the world's highest standard of morality was co composed. Look at this. Now remember what I just said, that a book with the world's highest standard of human morality was composed by a group of liars, frauds, and deceivers. <laughs> I almost got to put my head in my hand for that one. Hmm? Does that even make an ounce of sense? No. Of course it does. Not to anybody with any lucid, reasonable logic. No. Because to me, that in and of itself is an oxymoron, again, of an unbelievable magnitude. Just as it is to accept these with less proof than this with more. They're oxymorons. They don't make any sense. It's almost political, actually. Stunning. I mean, for what book contains a higher standard of love and morality than the New Testament of Jesus Christ. We must also concede that a book with overwhelming evidence as a historical document was carefully put together for one reason, and that was to deceive. <laughs> There's no deception is destroyed in here. It's completely thrown out as ungodly and wrong. And yet, that's what the haters are saying. It was contrived to conceive to do how, how do you I'm still trying to figure out how people without medication are doing that you can't I mean does this make any sense at all it shouldn't but if it does it will only make sense to those who don't want it to be true think about it known historical names Known places and events were carefully intertwined with bold-faced lies. Solemn affirmations concerning its truthfulness were made, intended to deceive those to whom such affirmations were made. And, and if we believe that lie, then we must also concede that we know absolutely nothing about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you have to say that. Why? Because outside the New Testament, there is not nearly enough reliable historical record of Jesus' life and teachings. The life, maybe. The teachings, no. All these other authors I told you about all agree that Jesus lived. They talked about him. But they didn't get into the depth of what he taught. Because <laughs> they didn't want to hear it, you see. Because they had to change. And let's face it, we don't want to do that. And yet we can prove his existence in the historical record, but not the details of life and what he taught. Beyond that, how can we trust the record of liars, frauds, and deceivers? Well, you can't. You can't. But is it reasonable or logical to draw such a conclusion? Of course it's not. You can't say historically that this is the most accurate document in the world and then not believe what Jesus taught, but that's the most accurate document there is. 
You, 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 you can't do it. So just to accept it historically is not enough. You have to believe. <laughs> I mean, don't you? If the truth is staring you in the face, and we've proven again against other documents and historians that it's the most accurate historical document we have, how could you not believe the spiritual side of what's listed in it? It stuns me. It blows my ever-loving mind. And I'm thinking, why haven't we gone down this road before? Why haven't we gone to prove the authenticity and truth of it before? Why do we always start with the spiritual side? Let's go to people where they live. Let's go to their intellect <laughs> and prove it there. If you can prove it to their intellect, their spirituality has to follow because it's right in front of them. It's, it's an impossibility to do it, to separate. You can't. You can't do it. So my friends, if we decide that the New Testament is true, now we have a reason for our hope concerning salvation, don't we? I mean, you want, if, if you wanted someone to ask you, why do you hope in Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you. I can prove that the New Testament is the most accurate historical document on the face of the planet. Even more accurate than all of the things that the colleges of the world are teaching. We can prove it. And so if I've got the most accurate historical document in the history of mankind in front of me, and the spiritual implications are there, and he talks about the salvation, how can I deny that? It's not possible. Therefore, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and my personal Savior. That's my reason for hope. <laughs> I could not deny it. As Bill Coker would say, I couldn't not believe. <laughs> right? Now you know. Now you know. Why? Because it tells us of the life and the death of Jesus Christ and how we can receive remission of sins through his blood. It tells us that we have a reason for our hope concerning his life. Why? Because it tells us of the teaching and promises that he made. And now we can have the peace and the joy that only he can provide because that's the only, way, and the only place you're going to get it. I know that. I can prove that to my own self. I suspect you can too. More than that, we have a reason for our hope concerning the future. I don't know where this world's going to go. I don't know where this nation's going to go. I can only guess at that. But I can tell you where I'm going to go, and I can tell you what's going to happen through here. I can tell you where that's going to go. What's going to happen between then and now, I don't know. But I know what's going to happen here. I know. I know that I know. Because, again, I'm reading the most accurate historical document on the face of the planet, which makes it the most accurate spiritual document on the face of the planet, which is why the devil wants to destroy it. <laughs> I can't prove that the book of Eli is completely true all the way throughout, but I can tell you there are some massive biblical references. Anybody seen the book of Eli? There was one copy left, and it was in Braille. Okay, will the day come when that is true in the Great Tribulation? It might. It well might. And why have they all been destroyed? Because the enemy doesn't want to. The most accurate historical document in the face of the planet in the history of mankind. Does he want to destroy it? Yeah, because of the spiritual implications. Absolutely. You can believe whatever you want, but you can't get away from that. Nobody can. Can't do it, friends. 
I don't care how smart you think you are, you can't do it. Because sometimes the most brilliant people are, are the dumbest there are too. <laughs> that I can tell you. The Bible tells us of his resurrection. It teaches us of his ascension. It teaches us of his return, as well as how we can have the hope of our own resurrection along with the eternal life that comes with it. <laughs> I'd say that makes it pretty accurate. <laughs> I'd say that, that if the Old Testament or the New Testament is accurate in its historical value, then what it contains is just as accurate. That means I get to have eternal life. I mean, you get to have eternal life. It means that when this life ends, it's not over for the one who believes. One reason for my hope, friends, is therefore based upon three facts which cannot be denied. Number one, Jesus lived. <laughs> That's undeniable. Evidence for the New, Christ, or the New uh, Testament as a historical document is absolutely overwhelming. O overwhelming. And if it isn't true, then it is a carefully contrived lie. I spent over 30 years studying the New Testament, and to conclude that it is a carefully contrived lie makes no logical sense to me, nor will it to anybody else who spends time there. And if you think it is, then you haven't spent any time there. And yet again, what are you reading? I know what you're reading. You're reading Homer, Sophocles, maybe even Freud. Okay, but if you're going to do that, I'm not saying don't, but if you're going to do that, you better spend some time here too because this is way more accurate historically than any of that, any of it. Can we prove it? Yes. And the more I thought about it, friends, I realized that to believe that this is a lie makes absolutely zero spiritual sense. Why? Because I have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Have you? In addition to my relationship with the Father and the Son who speak to me through the Spirit, I've experienced those things. No, I am persuaded. It contains a sincere, truthful account of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Not just for you and me and not just for that time, but for us together and mankind in the future until the Spirit is removed. That's going to happen one day. You see, the testimony of the New Testament is a strong reason for the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And I would like to think that it may be a reason for you and your hope as well. And if so, then maybe we should all live in the manner that proves this authenticity. Because the greatest detractor is when we say we're Christian, we believe in the New Testament, but we go out and live like everybody else. That's the problem. You see, because you're saying it isn't true when you do that. And, you, and here's the other thing. You can't just talk about it. You've got to actually do it. <laughs> right? we, we talk about a lot of things, right? Let me ask you a question as our worship team comes. You're stunned I'm done, aren't you? About 40 minutes. Now look. Yeah, you guys. Yeah. How many of you had great intentions to do something this past week and didn't do it? How many of you planned to do something even yesterday and just didn't seem to get done? I had lots of plans yesterday. You know what I did? Sat on the couch and watched TV all day long. 
I did, didn't I? Pretty much. Now, I did a few other things here and there, but I mean, I went to the restroom, you know, and got something to eat. <laughs> but much else, I, you know. Now, at the end of the day, you know, and I had great intentions. I told my wife, I think I'm going to make some homemade tomato soup. I like homemade tomato soup. I think I'm going to make some. And my wife said, well, you know, we had soup the other day. And then I thought, eh, she's not into it, so maybe I won't be. It didn't take much to get me off my game. Because then, see, then I had to take my sweatpants off, which I'm, and my flip-flops, or my, no, my slippers. And I had to put on actual trousers, or I guess, okay, sorry, pants. <laughs> and I had to put on shoes, because it's cold out, you know. And I had to put on a coat, and I, had to get, and I had to get in the car, and I had to go to get the things that I would need, yeah? And sometimes, it just isn't in you to do it, <laughs> right? It's just not there. It's just not. And so you think, <laughs> it's easier not to do it and not do the thing you wanted to do or plan to do because I just want to do nothing. That might be okay on a Saturday afternoon when it's just not in you to do something like making tomato soup or whatever it is you plan to do. But I'll tell you what, it's not okay. When you know that you know that this is correct and right, it has changed your life and will change the life of those around you. No matter how bad they are or where they've come from. That you know historically, we can prove it to be the most accurate document in the history of humankind. And if it's the most accurate document historically in humankind, then the spiritual content within it is pretty indisputable about what it's going to do. Further than that, you have experienced that it did. You know what it did for you. That's your testimony. Friends, you can't talk about living a righteous life based on the New Testament and all the writers and those who did it before you and then say, it's just not in me today. But when you won't live that way, that's exactly what you've done. And God's going to say, uh-uh, mm-mm. This is the greatest gift the world has ever been presented. It's the only thing that will fix what ails you. I don't care what it is. And it's the only truth that we really have. And in that light, you tell me what it ought to do, what, what should compel us. What should be at the beginning of your thinking when you, when you rise from bed? What should be on the forefront of your mind all day long? And what should be the last thing you think about before you hit the hay? I can tell you what it ought to be, what God did for you and why he did it and the truth of it and what you know because the world needs to be rescued and he's the answer. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.